0: This podcast is brought to you by the new Yahoo Finance Premium. If you're looking to take your investing to the next level, Premium has you covered. Try it free at yahoofinance.com slash premium.
1: I came to know about Susan Rice reading the newspaper and the internet and just getting to see you know that she was an extremely powerful person going all the way back to the Clinton administration and a rising star in the Democratic Party in terms of foreign policy. It was interesting to me that Susan Rice didn't like the word globalization because she believed that President Trump has hijacked it and turned it into a negative. Having said that, she believes that those forces of the world moving closer together are inexorable and that this recent spate of nationalism was merely temporary and that it would be impossible to hold back the forces that bring us together. I find Susan Rice to be a pretty impressive person. And if you just listen to her talk about foreign policy, she is incredibly thoughtful um, and well-schooled when it comes to understanding the forces in the world that shape where we're going and how our society needs to adapt and change. So I, I think she's very, well worth listening to. Welcome to to our guest, Ambassador Susan Rice, former National Security Advisor, former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations and author of the new book, Tough Love. Susan, great to see you. It's
0: great to be with you, Andy. Thanks for having me.
1: So um, I want to talk about the book, but I want to ask you about some news that's going on right now, um, in particular about the impeachment inquiry that the Democrats have opened up. Um, Do you think that impedes the ability of the United States to conduct foreign policy, and does it let our adversaries have any kind of advantage if that goes on?
0: Well, it shouldn't. Uh, I served, as you know from reading the book, in the Clinton administration for eight years and was the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs during the Clinton impeachment uh, effort. And so I was doing business with all the various countries of Africa, and actually some in Europe and elsewhere, Um, And I watched the State Department from where I was uh, perched do the business of the United States every day. And in that context, you know, because President Clinton was intent on keeping the the work of the the government focused on the business of the nation rather than on him personally, uh, we were able to continue to do what we needed to do and and serve the American people. And I think uh, the countries we worked with, the Issues we focused on um, were given as much attention as they would have in any instance. So that's possible. The question is whether this president, who seems to think that in some ways he is the state, uh, is prepared to allow his government to continue to function normally, which is what he ought to do in service of the American people. Congress continued to work during the Clinton impeachment. Um, you know, the, the notion that it's either or is really a a misconception.
1: Let me ask you about um, the specifics that are pertaining to the impeachment inquiry, specifically Ukraine, where the president called up and asked uh, the Ukrainians to investigate the Bidens, and then subsequently asked the Chinese or suggested the Chinese should do the same. Do you think that's the right thing to do?
0: (laughs) No, (laughs) It's, it's absolutely the wrong thing to do. And it's deeply detrimental to our leadership in the world, to the trust that countries can place in us, and to our national security. It's inconceivable in normal times uh, that a president of the United States would ask our most formidable adversary, China, to intervene in our elections on his personal behalf to manufacture non-existent dirt on his political opponent uh, in order to benefit one man, the president of the United States. We should be engaging with China to uh, to advance our national interests. We have economic challenges that everybody's fully aware of. We're in the middle of a hot trade war. We've got very serious security concerns ranging from cyber and techno- technology challenges to the South China Sea. And here's the president of the United States essentially saying to China from the South Lawn of the White House, if you give me some dirt, then, you know, we can play ball on a whole bunch of issues, essentially selling out the American people for his own personal gain.
1: Doesn't make it better that he's doing it publicly rather than in private?
0: Absolutely not. I mean, it's it, 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 it's, it's galling and appalling one way or the other. Um, the fact that he feels so confident to do it in public suggests that he really truly thinks he's above the law and that he has become the state. And that whatever is good for him is is sufficient justification for what he does in the name of the United States.
1: Would I be correct in inferring then that you would be for impeachment?
0: No, I, you can be correct in inferring that I think an inquiry needs to be conducted. I don't want to. I wouldn't personally prejudge the result of the inquiry. And I think you know, to be honest, Andy, I was slow to come to the conclusion that an inquiry was necessary until the latest thing occurred with respect to to Ukraine and then subsequently China. Because for all the outrages that that I certainly think this president has committed, what he did by signaling very directly to Ukraine that he was holding hostage U.S. taxpayer dollars for their security when Russia is on their territory, Uh, and, and trying to trade that security assistance in a White House visit, for again, dirt on his political opponent. Frankly, it validated all his denials from 2016 when he did in effect the same, asking the Russians publicly to intervene. Uh, And he did it perfectly brazenly and claims it was a perfect phone call um, because he seems to be unable or unwilling to distinguish himself from the interests of the United States of America. And Andy, we may come to this, but when we get to the discussion about Syria, and the decision to abruptly withdraw our troops and let Turkey in, now we have to ask ourselves what happened in that phone call with President Erdogan? Right. What made Donald Trump wake up without consulting his national security team and all of a sudden declare that U.S. forces are pulling out? And now Erdogan is coming to the White House for a visit. And remember the last time he came his, his security thugs beat up a bunch of uh, peaceful protesters. Right. So the Erdogan is a thug, Putin is a thug, she is an adversary, and this president is giving all of these adversaries uh, or, or thugs um, the benefit of, of our favor if they do something for him.
1: I do want to get back to Syria, of course, but, but sort of taking a bigger step back, Susan, I mean, is there a Trump doctrine Yeah. When it comes to foreign policy. It's actually
0: not America first. It's me first. And I would, having to say that as a former national security advisor is appalling and dangerous and horrible. We are in quite a uncharted territory. And I don't take any pleasure in saying that. But I don't see what conclusion rational people can draw other than that the president has put a for-sale sign on the Oval Office and what he is selling is anything that would get him what he thinks would be politically beneficial to him, maybe also financially beneficial, although that's less clear.
1: But wouldn't, it, wouldn't he argue that, I mean, if you look at what he said in front of the United Nations recently, that you know nationalism is on the rise and this is the end of globalism, that he is really all about sovereign nations instead of just himself. I mean, is there is there anything to that?
0: Well, there is such a political philosophy, which he occasionally tries to wrap himself in the mantle of, but that's not how he governs. Uh, and. If it were how he governs, I would be critical of that because I think we actually don't live in a world where sovereign nations can put up walls and pretend that they don't have economic engagement or security engagement with the rest of the world. We're, we're way past that time. This is not, you know, the 14th century here. This is a, a world in which commerce and climate effects and disease and terrorists and weapons of mass destruction and all of these things can move across borders. And so to pretend that we can be an island economically or from a security point of view is, is a fallacy in the first instance. But leaving that aside, mm-hmm. that's actually not his governing philosophy. That's great for a United Nations speech, but when you turn around and in the, in essentially in the same month uh, you know try to cut a deal to undermine the security of an important partner, Ukraine, by withholding desperately needed security assistance because they are in a hot war still with Russia, who is supposed to be uh, a primary adversary, and to, to withhold that assistance and withhold a White House meeting to extort false information that, that doesn't exist on a political opponent is the height of me first. It, there, there's no nationalism in that.
1: Right. And this is a business news network, and so we're watching the financial markets feel the implications of those forces, sort of the unwinding of globalism brought about by President Trump, but also other forces as well, like Brexit, and maybe President Xi, who's a strong nationalist. So the implications from a business standpoint are writ large as well, right?
0: Well, absolutely. Andy, we don't have the luxury of disentangling ourselves from the rest of the world, as you know, as simple as that might seem, and we are now feeling the economic costs—the beginning of the economic costs—of this uh, trade war that we initiated with uh, President Xi. And you know, I, I write in the book about President Obama's very last meeting with President Xi of China. We were in Peru at the APEC summit in November of 2016, and. President Obama and President Xi had developed a a working relationship where we were able actually to cooperate on important things, even as we were very firm in our competition with them. And at the end of the meeting, unsolicited and kind of out of the blue, President Xi says to President Obama, look, China does not want a trade war with the United States, but if the United States starts one, we will fight it to win. And it was a stark statement that we— that really had no predicate. I mean, it was obviously not a warning to President Obama because he was going to be gone. It was a warning through President Obama to Donald Trump. Donald Trump starts that trade war, uh, seems to have no strategy for ending it, does it without the cooperation and support of our economic partners and allies, where if together we were confronting China, we'd have a much stronger hand than doing it by ourselves and actually engaging in parallel uh, trade skirmishes with our partners and allies, and so uh, you know we face real you know challenges in terms of our e- economic interdependence with China. Um, but we're managing them in a very counterproductive way, I'm afraid,
1: right. I mean, You would acknowledge, just speaking to that last point, that the rules of engagement between the United States and China in terms of trade were written when the economies were here and here, and now the economies are here and here, and we still have the same rules. So they should change, but how to get the Chinese to change?
0: Well, there are two different things. There are the Mm -hmm. rules, which are to be negotiated, and we need to negotiate from a position of strength, meaning with our partners and allies. Uh, And then there are the things that happen beyond the rules, which is a large part of our concern with China, that they cheat on a number of different dimensions. Right. Uh, and again, we need to stand up to that, but we need to stand up in a way that's smart and strategic and that has an end game. And I don't envision uh, an end game either than other than potentially uh, capitulation after a costly and lengthy trade war. The Chinese, and this is what President Xi was saying to President Obama, they're not going to back down. They're not scared of Donald Trump, not under this for Chinese leadership at this point in their history and development. Um, it's not what they want, but if that's what we bring, they're gonna play to win. And we need to understand that. I think the Trump administration has a perception, whether they're dealing with Iran or China or any of these ancient cultures that have a history and a pride and a, uh, a philosophy of their position in the world, which may not accord to our view of their position in the world. But that they're, they're not gonna just back down because we say boo. Uh, and, you know, too often we see the president backing down after escalating and raising expectations.
1: So what are some specific ways to, to deal with China then? In other words, you can just continue to negotiate and try to make incremental gains in terms of all manner of things from trade to, say, human rights.
0: I mean, we got a whole lot of reasons to be very concerned about human rights in China. Yes. And, uh, and that was something that, that we and I think previous administrations— uh, Took quite seriously, right? Um, but the, the the larger challenge uh, with China is um, we have to, it's the most consequential bilateral relationship in the mm-hmm. world, U.S. and China, for the reasons we've discussed. They are they are rising and they're going to become a more and more formidable competitor economically, militarily, and otherwise. But that does not render conflict inevitable, right? And you know, one of the other things I write in the book is about how during the transition between the Obama and Trump administrations, I met on a number of occasions with um, my designated successor, Michael Flynn, who um, lasted 24 days in, into the Trump administration. But he gave me a very interesting insight into how they were thinking about China. And I can't say that it was the president's view, but it was his view. I think it's Peter Navarro's view, which is essentially, you know, we're gonna have to fight China sooner or later They're just going to get stronger, so let's fight them now. And he didn't mean purely on an economic basis. He meant fight them. I don't think we should accept conflict as inevitable with China. We're going to have to compete, and it could get ugly, and we've got to compete with all of the assets that we have, including our partners and allies. Um, But there are also avenues through which we can and must cooperate. And that's what we were able to do in the Obama administration, is balance the competition with the cooperation. That's how we got the Paris Climate Agreement working with China. That's how we got the Iran Nuclear Deal working with China. That's how we were able to get the toughest sanctions to date on North Korea. I was negotiating in the UN with China. Uh, so we're on, so
1: far from that right now, right? We, we're I very mean, working far from with that. China but to. Um, we got sort a of cyber agreement things.
0: that nobody thought we could get in mm-hmm. 2015, where for, you know we agreed not to. to steal each other's intellectual property using for, using cyber means for commercial gain. That deal largely held, and I was involved in negotiating it as I describe in the book, that deal held until we got into this trade war with the Chinese uh, under President Trump. So it's not impossible to work with China even as we're competing and even as we're having very serious concerns over South China Sea and their economic policies. We've got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And I think we've seemingly lost that uh, ability.
1: That maybe any young child could do, but that's a whole. So I want to talk about your book, of course, and, and I'm, the title is curious to me, Tough Love. What is that from? What does that mean?
0: Tough Love...
1: Uh, I mean, I know what it means, but...
0: Tough Love means to me loving fiercely but not uncritically. And that's how my parents raised me and my brother. They had very uh, you know, high expectations and yet they, you know, they gave us every support, every confidence. Um, but when we screwed up, they were gonna be the first ones to tell us and they weren't gonna pat us on the head and say you know, nicely done when it wasn't nicely done. When they said that, we knew they meant it. That's how I've also tried to raise my own kids with my husband. It's how I've tried to lead my teams uh, in government. And it's frankly how I love our country. I think this is the greatest country on earth. I love it fiercely, but we make mistakes historically and in the present. And I think part of being a patriot is being willing to acknowledge those mistakes and learn from them and, and improve upon them. So that's how I was raised, Andy. I mean, it's, you know, we all are fallible and we all can do better. And my parents raised me with the mantra to always do my best. Uh, And that they made it very clear that if I did my best and I screwed up something or wasn't very good at it, that's fine with them. What wasn't fine with them is, you know, mailing it in or putting in uh, a half-hearted performance on anything.
1: And you grew up uh, a black child growing up in this world of privilege in northwest Washington. Was that a tough environment for you? Did that shape you well
0: i grew to back up a few steps yeah um i came from parents who themselves had come up from modest economic circumstances my mother came uh, from parents who were immigrants to portland maine from jamaica in 1912 my grandfather was a janitor my grandmother was a maid and a seamstress they had nothing but grit and faith Uh, and hard work and they managed to scrape and save and send their five kids to college and two became doctors one a university president one an optometrist and then my mom who served on eleven corporate boards was herself a corporate executive and also for the bulk of her career uh... worked in higher education finance and was known as the mother of pell grants which have enabled eighty million americans to attend college my dad uh, was born and raised in segregated South Carolina. He was the son of a minister, but his father died when he was seven, and that plunged their family into difficult economic straits. His mother had to go back to work as a teacher uh, and, or go to work. She had not worked prior to that. She had to get her teaching degree and, and, and go to work. <clears throat> and he you know, had to fight in a segregated Air Force in World War II uh, with the Tuskegee Airmen mm-hmm. um, where he was fighting on behalf of freedom for everybody in the western world except African Americans who were, were not treated equally. And um, So th- they came from backgrounds where they had to make huge progress and they did so against major obstacles. My brother and I, born in the 60s, um, we're already in a better position because my parents had become professionals and they were able to give us, you know, a top quality education in Washington, D.C., even though, you know, right. we were black kids.
1: I guess I meant more that the people around you, it was the environment that there was, you there know, was the schools. environment
0: was challenging. But, right. I mean, look, right. first of all, I have to say I'm blessed that, that, that I had that education yeah. and that's all I've known. Right. Um, so, yeah, I was, you know, one of s- six black kids in a class of more than 60 in my high school. And uh, I had, you know, I did well academically and athletically and socially, but I also experienced uh, something that that may not surprise you because we come from the same area and grew roughly the same time, which is that at that white school, I saw some of my parents, some of the parents of my classmates when it came time to apply to colleges say to their daughters, you know, don't worry about Susan. She's going to get into some of these good schools because she's black. Mm -hmm. And so it was this reverse, you know, diminished expectations because they were discounting my success because I was, in their mind, black. And it was a way of sort of uh, encouraging their daughters in a false way but it was also saying you know, that I'm not really worthy. So that got under my skin mm. and I worked my behind off and I ended up sharing the award for valedictorian. So when that happened, I, you know, I never said anything, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, now what are you gonna say?
1: I yeah. <laughs> bet. So how do, how do you aspire to get into foreign policy as a young person?
0: I didn't actually aspire to get into foreign policy. I knew I wanted to be involved in making public policy. And growing up in Washington all my life, I mean, I, I was in that world and my friends' parents were in that world. And I worked on Capitol Hill for four summers in high school. And so the business of Washington I was raised with. But I actually thought until I went to graduate school and started, uh, studying, uh, international relations, thinking I was going to go on to law school and be some sort of, you know, public interest advocate or, you know, civil rights attorney or something like that. Um, I got the bug as a graduate student, um, when I was taking a two-year master's course in international relations and I stayed on to do my PhD in international relations and then had the opportunity ultimately, uh, to, to serve in government at a young age. Uh, my first job at the White House was when I was 28 at the National Security Council, and then one thing led to another. So really, I knew I wanted to be involved in policymaking. Uh, at one stage, I thought I wanted to do it through elected office. I realized in my mid-20s that I, I didn't really have the patience for that, and that I just, um, I could make policy without doing it through uh, elected office, and that's what I was thankfully able to do.
1: But elected office is still out there for you, maybe, right? Well,
0: elected office is still out there. Whether it's for me or not, we'll, we'll have to see. I haven't ruled that out by any means, and I, at different stages, I've thought about it. Uh, I think my, I'm a little more patient and I'm a little more uh, suited temperamentally to the give and take uh, and the compromise that it, it should occur in Congress if, if Congress is working. Um, but having said that, you know, I can serve again in, a, in an executive branch capacity or I can go in a completely different direction uh, and, and stay out of government. There, there are many different ways to serve. And I think you know, I'm just I will do what I'm excited about and where I think I can contribute. It doesn't have to be in foreign policy anymore.
1: Let me ask you about um, Benghazi, Susan, because your name is going to be linked to that forever to one degree or another. You've been exonerated across the board. Trey Gowdy exonerated Trey, you. Gowdy. Trey Gowdy. <laughs> yeah. But you know, if you if you Google it and there's always yeah. the right wing trolls yep. out there that are forever gonna say, you know, she was guilty of a cover-up, she was guilty of misconstruing the information. Does that bother you or, or where do you come out on that today? Well,
0: it bothers me because it impugns my integrity. Yeah. And uh you know, I, I can make mistakes. I can be wrong, but I don't mislead, and I wasn't dishonest. Um, and you're right to say that you know, eight congressional committees and everybody who looked into it agreed with that conclusion uh, that I had not lied or misled in any deliberate way. But uh, there will always be those, and I, you know, they're sort of the the noise of the far right that, frankly, I tune out uh, because otherwise, you know, it would, it would make you a little bit crazy. Um, but the notion, as you said, that, that my name is forever in some fashion synonymous with that um, it is not a happy thought. Um, but it's, it's a price I, uh, in some ways, signed up to pay when I decided to serve. It's, it's sad that that should be the case. But I would serve again and do what I've done if given the opportunity because it's such a privilege. And I think it's important work that our public servants do on behalf of our country. And I was really proud to have that opportunity. So for all that I uh, endured in that context, I would, I would serve again and, and, and be very grateful and proud to do so.
1: Let me ask you what I think is the question of our time when it comes to your world. And it pertains to a lot of things we've been talking about, which is, you know, since World War II, we've had this seemingly inexorable rise of globalism
0: until now. I hate now. that term, by in the inexorable, way. Inexorable or
1: globalism or which one? Globalism. okay. Why is that?
0: Because it's it's a it's a term that's now been hijacked by the right oh. to imply, you know, that there's something that's majority. It i I think of it that way now, and that's you why you have Trump saying at the UN, well, yeah. era of globalism is so on. It's not about globalism. It's about we live in an interconnected world. Okay. We live in a world where, you know, from an economic point of view, from a security point of view, from a, a social point of view, we're inextricably linked.
1: So, but my, my question is whatever you want to call it, the world was maybe coming closer together. Yes. We were cooperating more. I'm not going to use the G word. Okay. Until recently. And recently then we've had, as I said, Brexit, Donald Trump, Erdogan, Bonasaro, Xi Jinping. It's reverted a little bit, right? Things have gone in reverse a little bit. And my question is, is that a permanent thing maybe for the rest of our lifetime? Or is it a little blip? How much of a setback in terms of the world coming together are we in the midst of
0: it's hard to judge um, my instinct and my expectation is that it is not permanent that this is something of a phase. I say that because the the forces of progress pull us in a direction where we have to engage each other, and hopefully in that engagement cooperate. But we don't, as I was saying earlier, we don't get to throw up walls and pretend that we all live in our own little uh, patch of, of earth. That's not how we function anymore. We've got all kinds of things that connect us, whether it's technology, whether it's you know the movement of people, whether it's air travel, whether it's commerce, And, you know, unless we want to go back to medieval times, uh, which I don't think we could even if we wanted to, um, we're not going to be able to undo the forces that have brought us to this point. And so we can fight them, which is in effect what some countries are doing now and what Trump philosophically uh, uh, portrays himself as doing. Um, But... I don't, I don't personally think that the, the tide is going to stay uh, receded as it is now. I think it will come back. I think it has to start, frankly, here in the United States, um, where we are paying the cost to our farmers, to our manufacturers, to our taxpayers um, of this economic isolationism. You know, this trade war with China is not something China is paying for, as the president would have people believe. You and I are paying for it. Uh, and so is every American uh, with increased prices. And this is going to get, you know, uh, is it, the, the promise that he has held out of putting up these walls and being America first, it, it, it's, a, it's an illusion. Uh, and it's becoming a costly illusion. Uh, so I think here I'm hopeful that, you know, that people will see that this is actually not a path that serves us well. And you know, we'll see what happens in other parts of the world. You know, even in places like Italy, you know, the, the tide may already be turning. Um, I'm, gonna be very, I'm very interested to see what happens in the UK. I, I don't think that is a done deal at all yet. Uh, so, and you know, it seems that Johnson may be about to again overplay his hand. So let's see, but um, it's going to take wise leadership in the United States and many of these important countries. You know, China is going to be a nationalistic force, but it's an economically integrated nationalistic force. Um, and, you know, that tethers it to some extent to a system uh, that we helped create in the post-World War II uh, environment.
1: Do you think about how Facebook, Twitter, and Google are connected to the world in which you just described? Yeah. How?
0: Well, for better or for worse, they're, they're mediating the flow of much of the world's information and, um, or failing to mediate the flow of much of the world's information, depending on your perspective. Um, and uh, the, the danger of that is that their success and or failures become perceived as American successes or failures. So if Facebook, for example, is blamed in Myanmar— for, you know, uh, allowing anti-Rohingya propaganda uh, that incites violence or genocide. um, That could redound to the detriment of the United States and how we're perceived internationally because Facebook is such a major player. Um, Not saying it's justified, not saying it's fair. But I think we have to be mindful, both as policymakers and as uh, corporate leaders, that It's very difficult to disentangle the perception of our biggest economic players that impact the lives of people around the world and our country itself.
1: And last question, Susan. This program is about influencers, and so I want to ask you, how do you see using your influence on the world?
0: Well, Andy, one of the many reasons I I wanted to write this book, um, but I think one of the most urgent reasons is because I'm deeply worried that we're at a point where our domestic political divisions threaten to undermine the stability of our democracy and, very importantly, our national security. And in the last chapter in particular, I write about both how I'm uh, wrestling with that challenge in the microcosm of our family where we've got kids from very different political points of view. Um, But the, the sort of urgent call that I try to make is to Americans to understand that We've been through very difficult patches in our history, more difficult patches than today, from the Civil War to you know, Vietnam era to 9-11. But if we don't recognize the urgency of this moment and understand that healing these divisions is an absolute necessity for our continued leadership, our strength, our ability to serve the economic and the, the security interests of this country, then we may well find ourselves before too long greatly diminished and corroded from the inside out. But because our divisions are a problem of our own making, it's a problem we have the capacity to fix. If we understand its urgency and if we're prepared uh, to see ourselves as greater than the sum of our parts. I mean, we are all Americans in this boat together uh, and we can sink because you know we put all our weight to one side and flip the boat or we can balance out and row in the same direction. And I think we can do it. I think, as, we've, as I said, we've overcome much worse, but you know, this is my message uh, for the moment and it may be my message for a long time to come because as a former national security advisor, I've seen how dangerous these divisions are. We can't do simple things like get, our, get infrastructure legislation passed basic stuff that enables us to to stay on par with a country like China. Um, But we also are vulnerable to adversaries like Russia who are trying to exploit those divisions every day uh, on the internet and through their propaganda. If we don't recognize this and deal with it and fix it, um, our adversaries are going to benefit and we're going to be weakened.
1: Okay. Susan Rice, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Good to be with you. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm Andy Serwer. You've been watching Influencers. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Serwer.